0: At futureprimitive.org, I am here today with um, a very special man. His name is Jeffrey Lewis, and uh, I would introduce you by saying that uh, he is a trader, trades jewelry and costumes and feathers and all kinds of things with. uh, native peoples and uh, he has a business here in Santa Fe called the Trade Roots Collection. The Trade Roots Collection is the creation and the vision of Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey has a personal commitment towards preserving and revitalizing Native American trade and traditions. He has and his business has grown and flourished in that commitment. In the early years, Jeff spent much time in the rainforest collecting molted macaw parrot feathers for use in Zuni and Hopi ceremonial costumes. Later, Jeff began traveling the world securing supplies of exotic shell and stone, and he brought pearls from the South Pacific, coral from the Mediterranean, Mexico, and the Baltic Sea, all used by Native Americans for jewellery and fetishes. So, um, what we'd like to concentrate on today for our listeners at uh, Future Primitive is the stories that you can tell us, Jeff, about your life traveling and collecting and trading pieces with very special indigenous people. So how did this all begin for you? This began for me with a dream that I had
1: in the middle of the day one day. And in a split second, I saw my life in front of me, and I saw myself at the hub of the Native American Center here in the Southwest. Uh, I followed that up, uh, coming to the Southwest in the late 60s, uh, teaching high school here, and then finding my way out to the Hopi Reservation, where I was taken in by uh, both a medicine man and a, and a spiritual village head. And the, the medicine man sent me to Central America to find him parrot feathers, which had they had lost their way for thousands of years. Parrot feathers had always found their way through the trade routes to the southwest, and they're an important part of ceremonial life, of, of bringing the rain from the south to the parched topi villages. And, and I did that and went on a mission to basically save the parrot from extinction. At that point, the parrot was being eaten... Being shot as a pest for by farmers and was uh, disappearing. And I spent 15, almost 20 years in and out of the tropical rainforest in the northern of uh, and the Lacandon rainforest trying to preserve the bird and teach the, the local people there they didn't have to eat them, chicken was better and cheaper. Um, and I did that successfully working through some government programs. At the same time, I was working with the spiritual leader on Second Mesa who basically essentially taught me how to live my life. So I had a two-fold mission, and, and I lived for being up at Hopi and, and then moved to a, a small village right by Zuni Pueblo and raised my child there and, and went forward with my life doing what uh, these men prescribed for me, which was really revisiting and reestablishing the trade routes, the prehistoric trade routes, the trade routes between the Mayan and the Hopi, uh, later the trade routes between the East and the West, and, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And, of course, one thing leads to another, and now I have trade relations all over the planet um, it's important to know that everything that we do is, and everything that that I bring from other places is sustainable. It's not uh, when we bring Mediterranean coral from the sea. We're not. There's no coral reefs there. We're we're working with a a system that's been in place for thousands of years since Etruscan times. So I'm just filling in the gap of the current fellow who's doing that work
0: and moving those materials around to those who need them. You have a series of stories on your website and I'd like you to say the name of your website for our friends who would like to uh, read these stories. It's
1: traderoots.com T-R-A-D-E-R-O-O-T-S routescom okay.
0: okay. And uh, in the first of these stories you have that's entitled Hypothetical Root uh, you talk about being in the Mayan jungle in uh, Guatemala and um, you speak about having an extraordinary experience where you were given a a potion by um, the wife of one of um, the people you had met there and then, and then, and then well, they saw right away when I
1: showed up that year that uh, I wasn't too healthy and suggested I do a little cleanse. And trusting as I am, I, I took the herb and and proceeded to cleanse for several days and fasted and uh, totally purged myself physically, ultimately, spiritually, emotionally, really took myself back to the beginning and uh, after three days Lydia offered to feed me some tortillas and uh, for another three or four or five days kept me on a diet of uh, toasted tortillas and corn uh a, a mix of, of cornmeal mush basically and and as they, as they kept telling me Jeffrey you're like a baby now you're starting your life all over again and, and it was true. I was, I was totally cleansed and, uh, and went through the purge uh, and really got to see in my life. I got feverish. I, got, I was ill. But I got to really see what was important to me and what I really wanted from my life. And, and I guess if, if one prays, I was praying. And, uh, and out of that came the life I live now and exactly the way I asked for it.
0: So when you say that you were purged spiritually and emotionally, would you be willing to expand on that?
1: Well, probably the simplest way to put it is part of my physical condition was tied to my mental condition, which was tied to my upbringing, to my past, to my own trauma, like everyone has their own trauma. And what it really did was, uh, I purged myself of the baggage. So I was able to go forward and do the work I needed to do, both for the Hopi, and for the Zuni, and for myself,
0: clean. And that's probably the simplest way to put it. So what is your mission, Jeff, the mission that you realized while you were lying in that hammock and uh, later on had this magical massage from your friend, the Mayan medicine man? What
1: what my mission, what I saw as my mission, and what turns out to be my mission, is to both conserve and revitalize the traditional, cultural aspects of, of... native life here in America primarily in the Southwest. Uh, initially I was doing that through making available parts esoteric parts for ceremonies that, that I wouldn't even want to talk about because they're personal for for those that, that perform those ceremonies. So I, I was able to bring the materials consistently which allowed them to continue with their ceremonies, but also to help and, and to assist in their livelihood. And, and this was done through the art world, because as, as most of us know, to be uh, in the Pueblos and take part in the Pueblo ceremonial life, it's very difficult to go away. You have to be there, because there, is, there are meaningful things happening every day of the year. On the on the ceremonial calendar.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So if if you're a pueblo uh, Indian and and you live 300 miles away, you're in another world. You can't keep coming back and forth to take part. So and and many do, but at great difficulty, mm-hmm. great expense. So by helping to establish the art market for the Zuni. Uh, it gave gave many people an ability to be able to stay in the Pueblo and still earn a good living. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I did this in several ways. One was to make available the materials that are otherwise esoteric. The Mother of Pearl from the South Pacific, the coral, the various turquoises, and uh, a huge amount of different materials that, that allow the artist to then Work uh, and compete in the in the bigger picture. So that was uh, a crucial part. The, the second thing was uh, when I came to Zuni, the carving world was uh, all the carvers had pretty much died. There were a handful of carvers left, and traditionally the Zuni's have carved fetishes for for all of time. And in fact, that was their trade item in the old days of the trade routes when. When feathers and things would come up from the south through Zuni, the Zunis were trading carvings and uh, that they call fetishes back down south, along with turquoise and other items. So, so for me uh, to do this, I, I had to begin a marketing program for these fetishes, and so I revitalized the fetishes in a way that they were in in major catalogs in the United States. They were in department stores such as Gump's in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And these were companies that, that never dealt in Native American goods. Mm-hmm. But they thought that that these carvings and fetishes had such a an international appeal that they tried them, and it was hugely successful. So we've managed to create a market that is now carried on for over 30 years, mm-hmm. and and now it has a life of its own. I'm just, I, I'm now a small player in that big picture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read uh, in your stories that uh, one of your missions was to um, mm-hmm. reconnect the Pueblo people from here from the southwest with the Mayan people in your own way and so I'd love to hear about that. Well that
1: connection is ongoing. Uh, I do quite a bit of work with uh, an organization called SWAYA Southwest Association for Indian Art and it had always been just natives of the Southwest and natives of the continental United States and at this point Swaya is beginning to open its borders to artists from all of the Americas, from the North, from Canada, and from the South, from Mexico, from Central America, Panama, and, and South America. So that's an ongoing project. And, and through trade is how the cultural aspects of society have always been exchanged. Trade has always been a key to the exchange of ideas, of politics, of, uh, of ways of building, of, of everything you could imagine. The cultural soup. That's yes. cultural soup. Yes. When they found at Chaco Canyon that the walls were filled with rubble and, and the rock walls were, were actually a facade on the... The rocks were facaded on the outside and the inside was filled with rubble. That was a, a technique that came... Really plainly from from South and Central America, so that discovery was a big indication of the trade routes of of the ideas being passed from the south to the north. That's fascinating. And on the other hand, they have found turquoise from Cerillos, New Mexico, in uh, in in Mexico City, and various ruins have been dug up, and uh, and there are there are some pieces. Of sculpture in the museum in Mexico City, in the British Museum that are overlaid uh, animals and overlaid uh, sculptures that are overlaid with turquoise from America and generally from surreals from the old Tiffany mine
0: So you've spent a a lot of time with um, the um Indigenous Peoples of the Southwest most of my time most of your time What is the most important? I Hesitate to say the word thing so I'm looking for a better word, but what is the most important? Atmosphere that has rubbed off on you and made you who you are today. Well, of course,
1: the privilege of being able to attend various dances and ceremonies over the years. And some have a bigger impression on me than others, but but certainly the annual Shaliko ceremony at Zuni, which is considered one of the oldest continually performed ceremonial dance, if you can call it a dance, since... Shalako really takes place 365 days of the year in terms of preparation for a dance that only lasts 12 or 15 hours. But I would I would call that the most impressive and 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 really the thing that has had the most impact on me. And I attended that ceremony uh, 30 30 years in a row without ever missing. Wow. It. And would do whatever I had to do to be there, Mm -hmm. to attend that ceremony.
0: So, what does shalako mean? Oh, shalako. And what is the meaning of shalako? Shalako essentially is a
1: is a is a custom that was established, and there's many, many meanings, most of which I would I will never know about, but. Mm -hmm essentially, it was established so that every year the people of the Pueblo would build some new homes. And so every year there were six or seven new homes built. This meant carrying on, continuing the the, popu- the populating of the Pueblo. If they needed six new homes or seven new homes, it meant that the population was growing. So part of it was to keep the population from dying out. So this ceremony then is a combination of a house blessing ceremony of these new houses in which all the dancers and all the important deities come and bless the home. Mm-hmm. But it coincidentally happens at solstice time, mm-hmm. the winter solstice. So it's also a solstice ceremony. Mm-hmm. So there's prayers for the new year and thanks for the old year and it's it's an incredibly intricate ceremony with thousands and thousands of participants. And if you can imagine, a dance is being choreographed, but no one else knows the other person's parts. Yet everyone turns up to do their part all through the year, whether it's going off ceremonially to a, a certain place to, uh, to pray in the middle of the summer or fasting at a certain time or, or whoever is going to get the cinder blocks to the house to get the one of the homes built and it goes it's just uh, everyone has a job. some jobs are hereditary by bloodline some jobs are appointed in advance and uh, I'll never know most of this they don't no one knows mm-hmm. Every, no one knows the whole story everyone mm-hmm. just knows their part. Everyone has a piece. Everyone has a piece, and prior to the ceremony, they traditionally, the Zuni traditionally,
0: slaughter a huge amount of sheep. Oh, speak to us about that. You were once, uh, you were once asked to help by entering the small room where sheep were being slaughtered.
1: Well, I learned the hard way that right before Shalika wasn't a good time to go around the village to do some trading, because people are very occupied with more important things. And at this time, I was still in my 20s, I believe. I was uh, It was a long time ago, and I was in the village at a friend's house. Who said, oh, so you're here. You may as well help. Mm-hmm. And so I was taken to a room that was probably about a 12 by 12 room. And there had to be 60 people in this room maybe more. Wow. Half of the people in the room were the youngest of the young men and the other half were the oldest of the old women. Oh! So the youngest of the young men were slaughtering the sheep. They just had rooms full of sheep. Live sheep, dead sheep. Sheep gurgling sheep. And they uh, the sheep were all cut. Their throats were cut and their blood was let, and then the old, old grandmothers did did the skinning and the gutting and 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 the butchering of the sheep. And uh, I'd never really—I was a vegetarian at the time, but I cured that pretty well. <laughs> but I had never—I'd never, never really—I didn't know what death smelled like. Right. And so when I walked in that room, I just couldn't believe what death smelled like. It was it was a shock, and I, I didn't even know how I could stay in that room. But after about twenty or thirty minutes, you just you just breathe, and you just become part of of what's happening. And I guess I was there for certainly two or three hours, and. Uh, I had a hard time getting a sharp knife mm-hmm. to do what I had to do, mm-hmm. but I did what I had to do, and uh, that was the one year I actually went went home and didn't come back that night for Shalico. Wow! Out of those out of those thirty years, that was I still say I attended it, but I didn't come back that night. I came back the next day after the dancing was over. I mean, it, it, it was a. Uh, it's kind of mind-boggling for a Western guy, who isn't used to going out there with a knife and, and taking an animal's life.
0: Yeah. So what? It, what is the smell of death like? Indescribable.
1: It wasn't. A, it was not a dirty smell.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it was
1: a clean smell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what? we really smell, I think, is the blood.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of blood. Yeah.
1: Um, so I can't say. The, the picture will never leave my mind. The picture will always mm-hmm. be there for mm-hmm. me. I could go back there in a heartbeat and just be right there right, in the middle right. of it. Now, there was no fear. There wasn't a big fear. The sheep were very trusting.
0: Yeah, I read that
1: in your stories. It you said your anything? sheep didn't struggle. No, didn't struggle, didn't struggle, and uh, I just wasn't pleased with myself. I had to get, I had to become assertive to do this. Yes, it's not casual. Yes, you, you either cut or you don't cut.
0: Yeah, well, maybe the sheep knew they weren't being tortured. Yeah, they, they weren't, weren't being killed. Tortured. but they weren't being tortured. But, you know, to, but to answer your question, what does
1: death smell like? And I think, I think that what around the world forever, especially now with all the wars that that all of the Western world's involved in. I think what a soldier would tell you he smelled out there in the field would be very different than what I smelled. Because because what, what you smell out the field, I would imagine, is a lot of fear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's palpable.
0: This is good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Whereas this, there, there was no fear. This was part of a system that had been going on for many, 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 many centuries. So, everyone took their place in this play yes. and did what, what had to be done. Great, yeah. And the Zuni feed everyone during the ceremony and their enemies are welcome, their friends are welcome. No one is turned away. No one is ever turned away. and to feed someone is, is the honor of, of the people in the home. The more people they feed, the more successful the ceremony has been for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this, um, these musings take me to, um, you have a story that you call Radio Free Mutton Heads. And, um, mudheads, mudheads. Oh. Mud, well, i went to heads. the mutton yeah, stew, <laughs> <laughs> sticking mutton stew. Um, mudheads, and uh, so this is especially dear to uh, future primitive because you talk about um, people recording the music of the dances, and you say something that struck me. Is the, uh, the opposite of recording the same music that has been played forever. And then there's a whole story about that. Uh, the, the ladies like to have that
1: music for later in the year.
0: The, these are Zuni ladies? These,
1: this, this story took place at Hopi in Gagamokshi uh, in, in, uh, on First Mesa in K-Town. And Arrivy. and uh, for some reason at this dance there were more tape recorders than I'd ever seen, and bigger ones. They were. It was kind of an era where the boombox was happening. hmm And tradi- always that I always remember, even when I was young at the dances, it'd always be something with a small cassette cassette player, because when when the after the home dance when the dancers go back. To rest until the winter solstice, which is happening now. This is the end of the of the kachina dance season at Hopi. So in the next couple of weeks, there'll be no more dances until December or January, mm-hmm. when when they come back out to help man with their planning for next year. So the ladies like to have the music in between, and. So they were recording them, and there just seemed to be so many people recording. And, and the machines were everywhere. And the mudheads will do mu- almost anything for entertainment. So what is uh, a mudhead? A mudhead is a deity with a, a face, a head on it, on, that's, that's just brown mud with, with a eyes and a nose and ears and painted brown with mud and and the and it's hard to to describe a mudhead but what they do is they do they 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 take your mind off the ceremony in a lot of ways with their antics the uh, the mudheads will come around and do anything for a laugh um They'll come down off the roof on ladders and stumble over each other. And where the ceremonies are so serious in an effort to, to bring rain, to bring nourishment to the crops, so while you could be very focused on the dancers doing that, you're looking the other way and the mudheads are doing anything to distract you, to make you laugh. and And I can't say what they're... True and deep work is only what I see. But the mudheads on that day, and they'll often go bring somebody from the audience or from the uh, outside in and, and fool around with them and, and have various sexual innuendos, anything. There's nothing, no no, no holds barred. Whatever, whatever they can think of, because they're ad-libbing, they don't have a plan. Uh-huh. But in this in this case, I guess they just uh, thought they'd fool with with one old grandma and, and took her tape recorder. And any other time that happened, you'd expect them eventually to give back.
0: Yeah, yeah. But this
1: time, the grandmother protested loudly and hardly. She really wanted her tape recorder back. So the Hitch thought it was pretty funny and they held on to it and and then out of nowhere they just lifted it up over their head and smashed it Mm -hmm. and the grandmother couldn't believe it and then the mudheads started a little bit of a tape recorder witch hunt they were going around the crowd and the plaza and they were just they they were taking people's tape recorders they just they were just pulling them away and having tug of wars with the owners and There were some expensive machines. There were some good machines. And before it was over, I guess they had to have had 15 or 20, maybe 25 of them, just piled up like junk in the uh, center of the plaza. And they, they basically trashed all of them. And everybody was angry. And of course, the lesson was you don't need to tape it. Just listen. Just take it in. Take it in with your ears. Take it in with your heart, take it into your solar plexus because these dances are that way when you, when, when you hear and see 80 or 90 or 100 dancers in a small plaza with you know, a turtle shell on one leg and a, with deer hoofs clacking against it and, a, and bells on the other leg and a gourd rattle with little stones from an anthill in the other hand and and you start hearing all of that going along with the chanting and the songs, the meaning of which I would never know, mm-hmm. but it's, it penetrates, it penetrates as deeply as anything could penetrate into into your being.
0: Mm-hmm. And the Mudheads made their point. Very interesting. And that was the same music as forever. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you something very uh, personal, Jeff Lewis. Would you be willing to talk to us about some of the dearest relationships you've made with our Native American brothers and sisters?
1: That could be a, a book into itself. Um, of course, it would have to be David. David Lightning is, is what he went by. David Tilectua was his his given name who lived to be about 108, according to his family members, and I knew him the last 15 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And his grandchildren were too modern and not that interested in hearing his stories. Um, I was a good candidate, and so I spent the better part of those years spending as much time as I could with David. David. And David had an interesting history because he he spent two years in Chicago in the 1930s at the World's Fair representing the Hopi tribe at the Hopi wow. Pavilion. David traveled with his father. David was born not that much, not much after the Civil War, actually, in the late 1860s, maybe 1870. And... He spent his youth traveling the reservation with his father trading. And so he knew the, knew the reservation like, like nobody knew it. And he'd go to Zuni and he'd trade some Hopi embroidery and bring salt back from Zuni. He, he had all his trades going all over. And what he learned was the boundaries of the Hopi reservation. So when the big... When the the big contest came with the Hopi-Navajo land dispute, David was the one who seemed to know the original Hopi boundaries better than anyone. Mm. So over the years, David was called to Washington to meet with five different presidents. And this is the humblest guy you can imagine, maybe five foot one or two little guy. And of course, I always picture him in the dances in a naked except for a, a breech cloud, putting cornmeal on all the blessing all the, the kachinas, blessing everybody, blowing tobacco on them, and and sort of picture him in Washington five times with five presidents and and telling them what the original boundaries of the Hopi lands were. Mm-hmm. But also he was an incredible storyteller and he told me a lot of stories about his life, and Joanna, you can uh, you can give my website out as or I already have, where people can go and look at those stories because they're they're a nice glimpse into a reality that is impossible for most of us to even imagine.
0: Well, uh, there's a there's a story about uh, your spiritual grandfather's David's trunk. So perhaps you could give us some vivid glimpse into Grandpa David's trunk. You've read the story more recently than I. I can't remember. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. That's fine. I, I know what was in that trunk. That's what I mean. Well, yeah, that trunk. Well, if you can imagine a home, a rock house, Two rooms, each room measures 12 by 12 maybe. And in that, in that house, there's a kitchen and then there's another room. And the other room is the living room and the bedroom. And there's three or four or five generations living in this little house. And water has to be hauled in there's no running water Uh, there's a wood stove for cooking and it's not exactly well plastered the roof leaks It's a mud roof so the roof leaks and and then the walls are sort of distressed but but in this House that has very, really no, no, virtually no vision of material goods whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's cardboard boxes with some bread. There's corn hanging from the beams, maybe a couple Hopi baskets, maybe a couple dolls hanging, Kachina dolls hanging from the beams. But in the corner of this house is is a, a beautiful old trunk, ornate old trunk. With a, with a nice, nice Navajo rug on top of it. And, and of course, as a, as a trader, I'm always eyeballing the uh, the trunk, you know, what's in David's trunk. Mm-hmm. And at different times, David and I have done many things. Uh, one year he said, all right, middle of the winter, he says, you give me some of your tobacco and I'll give you some of my tobacco. And so... I pull out some of my tobacco and we take a smoke. And then he says, all right, wait a minute. He goes and opens his trunk. I get a little look in the trunk. And
0: Now, is this magical tobacco?
1: The tobacco that he, he and said, I smoked for him. me, that was magical tobacco.
0: <laughs>
1: so then he goes into the trunk and I get to look in the trunk and see all of his dance paraphernalia, all of his costume that he's built up over almost 100 years at that point. But he reaches in there and pulls out a pipe and uh, says, all right, now we're going to smoke some of my tobacco and, and my pipe. It's a beautiful pottery pipe with a stem on it. So we smoke some of his tobacco, and I have no idea what it is, but I had already had some magic tobacco, mm-hmm. so everything was magic at that point. <laughs> and uh, after we smoked... Uh, He gave me the pipe. Mm. And this was the pipe that he had been initiated with.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: As a boy. Wow. And uh, it's, it's probably my most fabulous possession of anything. Yeah. And I use it constantly.
0: Yeah. Still. Yeah. The trader's most fabulous possession. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, Jeff, we could talk a long time, and we're going to slowly bring our spiral conversation around. So, um, 38 years as a trader, 38 years traveling the world, 38 years communicating with people through the um, most precious materials of this planet. What would you like to say about where that has brought you in your life, where you are with your mission today? Well, it is my life. Prior to
1: being given this assignment and this role, I had no life. Mm -hmm. My life was... You know, as Hank Williams said, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. <laughs> I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. <laughs> well, the he opened the doors for me, mm-hmm. gave me my life, and I'm living it. And I'm grateful for it every day. Mm. And I have a debt that I can never repay. But I try.
0: Yeah. What is your fetish? Jeffrey Lewis, what is your power animal? The parrot. The parrot. Yeah. The parrot that you did a lot to preserve. Yeah. Okay. Would you like to say something in closing? I think that what I've learned
1: through all of this is that everybody does have a mission. Everyone does have some work cut out. Most of us are moving so fast, doing what we think we need to be doing, that it just comes by, sits right in front of us, looks us right in the eyes, and we miss it because we have our preconceived ideas about what we ought to be doing. And I was blessed to have found a time in my life where I could slow everything down, and slow my needs down, slow my desires down, and be quiet enough to hear what my, my work was. And, and once I finally got quiet, it didn't take very long to get the message. And I think I'd like to leave, leave it with those, with those words.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you.